I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, I want to welcome everybody to another edition of I-94 Live, but it's not at Pilsen Community Books, it's at the dial. Today we have, I know we screwed up, are we in the wrong location? What happened, guys? It's a beautiful spot. It's amazing, actually. Dude, I made a real mistake here. But anyway, we are with not the guy who wrote this book in my hot little hand, which you cannot see because this is radio and not television. It is called The Cliff Dwellers. The guy that wrote it has been dead for a long time. I believe close to 100 years. His name was Henry Blake Fuller. He was the author also, we believe, of I think the first gay novel in America. Am I correct? Correct. Correct. So... The person that just said I was right, and he's a good guy for saying so, is Mr. Adam Morgan. Give it up for Adam Morgan. All right, so why are we talking about this book right here? Well, The Cliff Dwellers uh, was originally published in 1893, and it is considered one of the very first novels, not only from Chicago, but about Chicago. The Cliff Dwellers, as you may have figured out by looking at the cover of the book, which none of you on the radio can see, it has a skyscraper on it. And when this book came out, it was because uh, it was a sensation, first of all, because it was about modern life in Chicago, which at that time was dominated uh, by the building of uh, 10 to 16-story buildings here in our city, but also because it was a telling of the mercantile and professional class of Chicago in what you will discover as this discussion goes on was rather unflattering terms. Now, this book was a a melodrama. It was originally uh, serialized in Harper's Weekly. Uh, and I, I did Henry actually sign his name to it when it first came out? Was he credited? He was, yes. Okay, so it was it was a scandal. Uh, a lot of people did not uh, in those days when uh, and this was a wonderful time by the way to be a freelance writer, not like now at all. When stories were popular and they were re- reprinted in like uh, Harper's Weekly, local newspapers and there used to be more than two in this city, uh, would pick it up and reprint it. Well, nobody would touch it with a 10-foot pole because it was the fictionalized story of people living in a building called the Clifton, which is actually based on, I think, the Monocodonk, right? Uh-huh. Which I've never been able to pronounce. But uh, over Monocodonk. there... Monocodonk. Yeah. No, no, I can never... It's <laughs> Monocodonk, whatever it is. It's, it's that building over there, a fictionalized version of that. And he uh, basically went story by story and told um, melodramatic stories, basically of people coming to the city to be ripped off by people who are selling stocks and insurance and stuff like that. Young women losing their virtue, I think, is is another key thing. What is fascinating about this, and I can say this without spoiling it, is its last three chapters are very atypical for any book. Brutal. Now or then. Uh, It is a very unusual ending to a melodrama. And with that, I kind of want to get Adam, who is the editor-in-chief, actually, of this line from Chicago Review of Books. This is the first of a series of historical books, and it's why we've put them between, you know, three big, husky, sweaty guys here in front of you guys. What attracted you, first of all, about this book, other than it's a seminal Chicago novel, and why have you decided to, to bring out more of these books, Adam? Sure. So the thing that really attracted me to this novel in particular is that when we launched the press, we wanted to bring back uh, these books uh, about Chicago and that were you know, really influential in Chicago literature. Um, and this was the earliest one that really made a national impact. So chronologically speaking, it made sense to start uh, with this one. Um, but then also, Henry Blake Fuller himself was just such uh, an influential figure uh, in Chicago and you know, nationally, um, not just because of this book. Um, this book obviously made a huge impact and kind of established him as a, as a powerful guy in, in American literature um, in the 1890s. But also, he went on to, um, he was you know, Harriet Monroe's sort of right-hand man um, editing and printing poetry magazine um, in the 1910s and the 1920s. 
Um, so we just had a really big footprint here. He actually had a studio in this building that we're sitting in right now, the Fine Arts Building downtown. Are we sitting in a studio? We are sitting, uh, I don't know that this was a studio. I, I'm not sure what it was at the time. Up that way? Okay. He but actually published a short story called Under the Skylights. It mm -hmm. takes place right here in this building. So. Yes, it does indeed. Um, so yeah, he was just a fascinating uh, person and a very handsome person as well, if you've ever seen um, a photo of him. Um, and uh, it was just a really fascinating book that has, it still sort of has you know, a name cachet here in Chicago because of the Cliff Dwellers Club um, a few blocks uh, north of us here as well. I did want to mention too the historical time that this was written. Um, it was during the World's Fair while this book was being written. Um, half the United States population um, statistics were rough back then, but roughly half attended the World's Fair. It was also uh, it was 30 years after the Civil War, uh, and then 20 years after, uh, roughly, I'm you know not giving you exact numbers here, but 20 years after the Chicago Fire, and we went from Reconstruction. And this, you know, right into the Gilded Age when, you know, capitalism here was just rampant, unchecked, kind of like it is now, actually. It's, you know, corporations had way more uh, pull. It was uh, shortly after the um, Haymarket riots. You know, there was a lot of um, unrest with labor, and there was a lot of people making a lot of money at the top and a lot of people not making money at all at the bottom. Um, you know, it doesn't sound a whole lot different than today, but... I just want to mention that, except the labor movement actually, you know, was a lot more, I don't know if it was stronger, but they definitely had an impact and they were, and they were fighting for their rights. Um, you know, a lot of that gets lost. Um, I'm a big labor guy. And um, a lot of that gets lost in our, our you know, telling of, of history. But the, you know, the, there was uh, another fire too. I think it was in 1874 that was from riots from, from the labor movement. So I just want to, Give a little historical contest. Contest. That's afterwards. You'll be we'll have the quiz. The quiz will be passed out. Uh, we'll, we'll hand out our contest after. But I want to put a little historical context on it because, you know, these guys in the book were from the East Coast. You know, they were coming here to make their fortunes. Yeah, this was the West at the time. Yeah, this they, they called it the West. You know, they were moving West. It wasn't, you know, the Midwest as, as we're known now. But it was just, you know, rampant. Capitalism, greed, uh, you know, it, it's in some ways, I would say, you know, it, it's, it was a precursor to the muckraking um, that came down the road. But I just want to give a little historical context. And I don't know, if Adam, if you wanted to add anything to it. He has a lovely introduction. Sure. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> really, the book was meant very um, consciously to be an indictment of capitalism um, and an indictment of the sort of very fast uh, industrialization um, that Chicago was going through at the time and how it just kind of sucked in all these people from the East Coast and just spit them back out. Um, even though uh, Fuller himself was actually very wealthy and came from a very wealthy family. Real estate um, family, correct? Uh, bankers, I bankers. think. Uh, I think bankers, um, his grandfather uh, moved from the Boston area uh, to Chicago and then um, his father was actually the, one of the first guys um, who started the, the first trolley system uh, in Chicago. So a very wealthy family. Fuller was born uh, a few blocks from where we're sitting right now at uh, LaSalle and Van Buren um, at the old, well, it, hadn't, it wasn't there yet, but now it's gone, uh, the LaSalle Street Station um, that was over there. Um, so yeah, a, a wealthy guy who comes from a lot of money, but um, this book and the next 
Chicago-based novel that he wrote after this, two years later in 1895, uh, with the procession, was also very much an indictment of uh, Chicago capitalism. Was he related to Margaret Fuller? Not that I'm aware of. She was, she was the first editor-in-chief of The Dial, the publication The Dial, I think. I think so. And did they, and did they publish? So I... Cliftwood? I'm not a... No, I'm not a, an Mary expert shaking on, her head, no. on Fuller or the Dial, but I think Margaret Fuller was the editor of the Dial before its uh, iteration in Chicago. Um, so back when it was on in okay. Boston or on the gotcha. East Coast. Gotcha. Um, I could be wrong, but I think. Can we talk at all about future Chicago books that Chicago Review of Books are going to be reprinting, or is that something you want to keep? Sure, I can. I can't confirm what the next one is going to be because we ran into a hiccup. The next one was going to be um, Maud Martha um, by Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, we even signed the contract with the Brooks estate, but it turns out they sent the contract uh, by mistake. <laughs> so sorry, that's not funny. That's yeah. not going to be the next uh, book. I think we will be able to publish an excerpt uh, online, but. Right now, it's it's between um, Margaret Anderson's uh, first biography, um, who was the editor of the Little Review here in this building, um, and was a friend of you know she knew Fuller, uh, and she went on to publish Ulysses um, once they had moved out of Chicago. But um, it's between her biography and uh, a book called Knock on Any Door yes. yeah. um, by yeah, Willard yeah, yeah. Motley. But back advocate of that book. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. We've but talked both... about it many times. On oh, the cool. Show, so. Nice. But both of those are, uh, you know, getting publishing rights um, from estates and, and surviving family members is always, and, and publishers is always a complicated process, especially when you don't have much money like we do. So, um, yeah. I just want to put out a, I want to be an advocate for that novel. It's fantastic. It's an unappreciated, under uh, looked at novel by an, a very amazing African-American author from Chicago named Willard Motley. And he actually ended up um, becoming a little bit, uh, I would say now you call it right wing in his views. He was uh, against assimilation um, and some other things. And he kind of got pushed off to the side in the same way Zora Neale Hurston did because she was not, um, he was not uh, interested in the civil rights movement and their cause. So it was, uh, both those writers were, although Zora Neale Hurston has always been popular, were um, alienated by their peers because of their political beliefs. Mm-hmm. Getting back and, to oh, the, the I'm the sorry, too. Willard Motley was also gay, correct? I'm not sure. I don't know a lot biographically about Motley yet. Um, I believe he was. I think Motley was, yeah. yeah. I think he was. But we, we always talk about gay authors in this show. Yes. It's one of the things we do. Getting back to this book, one of the interesting things about this book for, let's be honest, it, it is a melodrama. It's kind of dated. Mm-hmm. If, I think if anybody is going to read this book and, and look at it, um, there are things about it structurally that we would find very antique today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that dialogue is presented, for example, is presented in a style that was very popular back then but we would find it a little muddled and not as straightforward. Uh, I think if you guys leaf through a couple of the chapters, you'll, you'll see what I'm saying. It's not a knock in the book, it's just a, a note about the historical period. What was interesting to me as a, as a Chicago city dweller though, uh, especially during the early going, was how spread out the city was at this time. There's a number of descriptions, uh, and we joke about this, I think now that, for example, we're, we live down in Bridgeport, we joke that if, you, if you're down in Bridgeport, it's so hard to get to Rogers Park or Logan Square. People tend to stay in their neighborhoods. Well, in this book, people really did stay in their neighborhoods. Uh, they talk about going 
even further west, and west, by the way, would be like from here to Damon. And that was, that was an epic trip of weeks, you know what I mean? People didn't come back from those trips. There's a number, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the heck was going on in Humboldt Park. You may be able to answer that. Yes, well, they did. Mm. You know. And horses. And horses. But pe people went west, basically, uh, and, and didn't come back. There's a number of interesting passages in this book about how, uh, especially in terms of social engagements, people would do tours of various houses in the town. Debs were presented. People's daughters would be attempted to make matches and all that stuff. But it was very uh, geographically confined. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, Adam, because that's something that we don't even think about nowadays. You know, we have cars, we go all over the place. You know, none of this really comes up, but it was very spread out and with reason at that point. Yeah, it was. It was very balkanized um, in terms of, you know, you, you, you knew the people in your neighborhood and you typically worked in your neighborhood. And, um, and yeah, it would be a, a long trek to even get uh, the, the main character... Uh, well, he's sort of the main character. He's, if there's a if there's, if there's a hero in this book, it's it's George Ogden um, from Boston, and he moves here. And he at the beginning he moves into Union Park, uh, which is where Pitchfork is going to be. Um, is it this weekend? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, right now, in fact. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, no, it's tomorrow. Yeah, but it's they're setting up. No? So right now. Um. Anyway, he moves to Union Park, and then the the his his boss and sort of the, the social circle that he starts to get involved with uh, is in River North. Um, and they talk about, well, we're never going to see you, right? You'll never see anyone. You won't go to any of the, the good parties and stuff because you're, you know, way out there. I think back in then Iowa, they called it basically. the North Side. They called the, it what? The North Side. Yeah, the North Side. Yeah, Tower Town, um, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, you'd have to get on a horse and carriage, um, to get, especially uh, east-west, uh, there were you know some um, streetcar systems like the LaSalle um, tunnel and stuff that people would use to get around downtown. But uh, yeah, yeah, you stayed where you you stayed where you lived. Chris, you mentioned Tower Town, which it came up in the last or two books ago. Uh, yeah, Three or four more than that. Ago? Yeah, was Boys it, of uh, Fairy Town. Boys of Fairy Town. Mm -hmm. Tower oh, Town yeah. was uh, the gay district in Chicago at the turn of the century. Uh, also an arts district. Uh, one of the most Bohemia. vibrant, Little yeah, Bohemia. the Bohemia yeah. of, of Chicago, and that was basically where Old Town is. That was called Tower Town. So, uh, if you're thinking that Tower Town was far away from where you are right now, let that sink in, because it's it's really not. You can probably walk there. So, I wanted to share a, just a quick passage from Jesse, who is ends up becoming uh, George Ogden's mm. wife, yeah. and she's spoiler. That's uh, not a spoiler. <laughs> oh yeah, that is a spoiler. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Bad things also happened, which yes, is also a spoiler. They got okay. married. I apologize. This it's book okay. did come out in 1893. Yes. Yes. So it's hard to spoil a book that's yeah, that old. Around. You may have not heard of the story of Jesse and George, but um, <laughs> but she's talking about Chicago, and she says, perhaps you think that there are not any nice people in Chicago. I heard that remark made. Well, there are, I can tell you, just as nice as anywhere. I suppose you've noticed the way the papers here have of collecting all the mean, hateful things that the whole country says about us and making a column out of them. And I just laughed because, you know... Sh we still do that? This is happening right now. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. The apricot toddler is obsessed with Chicago. You know, he tweets about it all the time. And What um, is that? Donald Trump. Oh. Um, yeah. That's what the British press were calling him. The, <laughs> Sorry. The apricot toddler. Sorry, yeah. 
the Cheeto Jesus, whatever you want to call him. But a little, little too inside baseball there. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, people rip on Chicago all the time. All they talk about is the violence here. They don't talk about anything, you know, unless you're here. You know, like people think we just live in igloos and shoot at each other. If you, sh- if you move to, um, or I mean, if you travel, I've, I've done a lot of traveling and um, I remember I was in a cab in Egypt, and the guy, I got in the cab, and he's like, Chicago, ah, 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 you know, and I'm just like, yeah, we don't do that, but some, <laughs> it's, it's really okay. But we do have this, you know, reputation. It seems like, you know, it's been going on this, with, since, you know, the city was being built and, and beyond, and I was just wanted to throw that out there, because when I was reading that, I just started laughing, because... <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Fuller had a very love-hate relationship with Chicago. I mean, he was born here, went to schools here growing up, uh, and lived here for most of his life, but he traveled in Europe a lot um, and traveled to New York a lot. And um, he he wanted to sort of, through his fiction, he wanted to sort of uh, break the chains between uh you know, shackling Chicago to New York as like a second city and shackling the United States to Europe as sort of a, you know, a colony still in a lot of people's minds, at least culturally speaking. Um, And so he tried to do that a lot through his fiction, but he also sort of hated Chicago and couldn't stop complaining about it all the time, which you get, you get a sense of that. It's kind of like Algren. Algren was like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned, you were talking about George Ogden and, um, he he was an interesting character to me for in the fact that he was a newcomer to the city and um we're being introduced to this upper class through his eyes and his experiences uh what's the company he works for the underground the, national bank the yeah the bank yep <clears throat> and um it occurred to me that his experience might be kind of like like yours with the review of books, you're kind of a newcomer to the um, to the publishing scene, mm-hmm. and I want to know if you related at all to that character and and how it's been coming onto the scene. With I don't know if you deliberately modeled Chicago Review after L.A. Review of uh, Books and New York Review of Books, interesting. Who who've been around for a long time? Yeah. Um, I yeah, I wanted to know what what it's been. Interesting. Like. Yeah, I didn't when I was reading it think of the parallels between. George and myself, because I'm hopefully not that self-centered that it would have <laughs> popped up. But uh, yeah, I could definitely see some parallels. Uh, you know, I came to Chicago from the Carolinas, um, which is not Boston, but um, people here probably can't tell the difference. So um, uh, there are cities in the Carolinas. Uh, there are cities in the Carolinas. Yes, uh, Charlotte. Where? Charlotte. Who? Oh, there's a basketball team there. And a football team. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. There's no football team there. Carolina Panthers. No. But go on. Uh, I was just there. It's a lovely city. It is a lovely city. Yeah, my sister lives outside. Nice, nice. Um, anyway, so yeah, when we when we started the Chicago Review of Books, um, there are a lot of digitally native media outlets that cover books in New York, and there are a few in Los Angeles. Uh, but it's very it was very, it is and, and was still um, primarily a bicoastal. Um, seen in terms of uh, media coverage of books online. Uh, and 
I wanted there to be something like that in the Midwest. Um, and while the Chicago Tribune uh, has a lot of books coverage and they do a great job, um, and there are a lot of fantastic literary magazines in Chicago as well, um, right like a year before we started the Chicago Review of Books, uh, the Tribune canceled their literary supplement, uh, Printer's Row, yeah, and they scaled back their digital coverage a lot uh, as well. Um, and I, I love the Tribune. I, I write for the Tribune. I, I don't mean it as any sort of um, critique against the Tribune, but there, I felt like there was a, there was a hole uh, in Chicago and in the Midwest in general um, for this kind of literary coverage. So with the, with the review books, we wanted to, we didn't want to just cover Chicago-based writers and authors because um, we felt like that would be too narrow of an audience for us. Um, so we wanted to cover everything, but pay special attention to Chicago and Midwestern people so that when we get these eyeballs from all over the country or all over the world looking at other things that they're interested in, they might notice some Chicago stuff while they were on the website, right? So that was kind of, that was the idea. That's the yeah. exact reason we started this show, actually. Nice. Is, uh, there are some, you know, book, book shows on, uh, not on live radio, I guess NPR has their little book things, but yeah. I'm going to be honest, a lot of those NPR people, they don't read the books. And I've had writers tell me about it, and they've been on interviews. And uh, we take pride in every book we read. We do research. You know, I've been re you know, looking at... Uh, I don't yeah, know you get the highlighter out there. Yeah, I have. Someone was very impressed with my highlighter use on one of the shows. But, yeah, you know, we, we read through these, and we... Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, you're a librarian. That's Mary's so, yeah. disgusted. Yeah. It's because you're a secondhand bookseller. Yeah. It just dropped the value. Yeah. I can't <laughs> trade this back. Sorry, Mary. But um, so we wanted to have, and we, we focus on the Midwest and indie presses, but it doesn't always happen. And a lot of times it's stuff we're interested in. And um, same thing, though. That's why we do that, too. So. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Where do you guys see the review going? I mean, this is obviously the first book that you guys are, are bringing out. It's a new series for you. But what is kind of the overarching thing that you'd like to accomplish over the next couple of years? Sure. So the, the big thing right now is that we are transitioning to a nonprofit uh, organization. We've filed all of our paperwork with the Secretary of State. We're just waiting to hear back, uh, and then it'll move on to the IRS. Um, and the reason for that is right now we're all volunteers, um, some of us here in Chicago, but other people in Pakistan and Australia and Canada that are writing for us. Um, and that's not a very sustainable uh, way to do it since we can't pay writers um, and we can't pay our editors. Um, so to become a nonprofit, we bring on this great um, board of directors with local um, authors, local booksellers to help us grow. And then also we can apply for grants um, from the city and from you know national foundations um, so that we can be sustainable and, and, and pay people and um, continue to grow and continue to keep doing this because you can only you can only all do it for free for so long, I think, right. and it's been two and a half years now. Um, yeah, so that, that's the plan, just to keep growing in, as a nonprofit. Is there something special about Midwestern or, or Chicago authors? I mean, obviously, it's natural, I think, if you're in a city to focus on writers from that. Mm -hmm. But it does feel, and maybe I'm a little more cognizant of it because we've started, we've done the show, I think we've had 40, this 41 episodes, I think, right this now? This is 41. 41, yeah. so... It's, it's, there seems to be a lack of attention paid to authors who are in the middle of the country unless uh, they've been they're, lucky to... Unless know, they're e-viewing. Unless they're e-viewing, yeah, God bless pays you. attention to e you know, She's a wonderful person, by the way. Uh, uh, but there's, there's 
a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of writers out here, and there's a lot of books that are published out here, uh, but they don't necessarily get a lot of attention. Why do you think that is? I think really it's the same reason that we still remember and read and, you know, celebrate the Harlem Renaissance, and we don't really do the same thing for the Chicago Black Renaissance, which is the Harlem Renaissance happened to be located in the same city as all the publishing companies and all the media outlets, um, which, you know, helped a lot in terms of um, attention at the time and in terms of preserving uh, the work, Um, whereas here we don't have that same kind of... um, literary infrastructure. Um, we've gotten a lot of literary infrastructure in the past like 10 years. Uh, it's definitely heading in a, in a great direction. I feel like we had the music infrastructure, but you know, mm. early Chicago music celebrated, but the books, yeah, I, I agree what, with that. What is a literary infrastructure? Uh, there's a guy uh, named Bill Savage who teaches history yeah. at mm-hmm. Northwestern. Yeah, yeah, he edited this book, um, Chicago by Day and Night, that um, we've got here on the desk. But uh, he talks about... Uh, I don't know if he uses the term literary infrastructure, but he talks about um, something similar where it's it's sort of like the artistic uh, equivalent of our um, like water systems in Chicago, right? So without the water systems there, water can't move around, like from the lake to the channels to drinking to everything else like that. Um, Shoot down to St. Louis with our sewage. Exactly. Yes. So Aha, St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> he talks about how Chicago uh, has recently developed uh, much more of a literary infrastructure where there are these uh, support systems in place uh, between writers, um, you know, looking for a community, which is an important thing to for a lot of writers. And then also just institutions like media outlets, uh, like um, publications um, and print uh, festivals. Um, Dollars. Uh, Dollars, yes, funding organizations like the Poetry Foundation um, and things like that that have really were not here uh, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, but have um, there were things here, but um, not like we see today. Well, we're an example of the literary infrastructure right now at the Dial. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Aaron and Mary are very supportive of, of local artists and, and authors, and you know, we've been partnering with them for what a year now. Thanks, so. and uh, they treat us so well, and and uh, it's a I, I can't get over how beautiful this bookstore is, you know, and it's it's little things like that, you know, or to build on community, and that's how we met you and other Chicago uh, writers and publishers, and I think that's part what you're talking about too, correct? Yes, yeah. yes, that is. No, booksellers play a huge, a huge role. I mean, if there's a big literary event happening in town, if there's a big event where people are meeting each other and coming together and, and um, building a sense of community, it's happening at an independent bookstore for 90% of the time or off-site um, hosted by an independent bookstore. Um, so it's absolutely crucial to that infrastructure. Yeah. Well, on that note, we got to take a small break to remember the folks that make WLPN possible. So please give a round of applause to Adam. <laughs> and we'll be back right after the break. Once again, everybody, you are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. I am Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Good evening. Michael Sack. Yellow. And that means you're listening to I-94 Radio today. We are live from The Dial. We're not lost. We're usually at Pilsen Community Books, but we're at The Dial tonight with the Chicago Review Press's Adam Morgan. Please give him a warm dial welcome. I just wanted to say before we get started, the... 
bookcases here at the dial are made out of the bleacher seats from Ronald Reagan's high school. So just a trivia fact. Is I it want Ronald to share Reagan that. High School or Ronald Reagan's high school? Ronald Reagan's high school, right? The one he went to. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Don't burn them. Please. If you if you pull a yeah. book off the shelf, there's a chance that Reagan's butt was on that where that book was. So, always good to know. Precious. <laughs> Adam, we wanted to, one of the questions actually that came up at, at halftime, so to speak, was there is an organization in Chicago called the Cliff Dwellers. I had always assumed it was named after this book. Me too. You are telling me that that may not be the you case. You are wrong. Why I, don't you tell all of those folks which of us is right? I personally believe that it was named after this book based on the evidence that I have seen and that I have read. But if you go to the Cliff Dwellers Club and ask their members, you will get a variety of very impassioned responses uh, to this question. But yes, the Cliff Dwellers Club was founded by Hamlin Garland, who was another Chicago writer and a good friend of Fuller's. And from what I've read, he named it after Fuller's book as sort of a nod to his friend, right? Fuller actually never joined the club or had anything to do with it because Fuller was very misanthropic uh, not a in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, well, having read the book, I, I, I wouldn't want to be a cliff dweller. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, and, and I'm guessing that's what the current cliff dwellers, that's how they feel? Uh, I th Well, there's the contention that they have is that it was it was actually named after, you know, the, the Anasazi ruins right in the American oh, Southwest with the, the cliffs and stuff, which I, I can see the connection because um, Fuller himself makes some sort of uh, analogies to that in this book um, and um, other scholars have as well. And there is like some weird, there's some like Southwestern, you know, Native American iconography at the club. And so they've really, I think they've embraced that angle of it. Um, at least they did in the, you know, in the past. And so they, they respect it now, but yeah, it's a, it's a hot, uh, hot topic over there. Hot topic discussion of the cliff. What Club happens Club. there? What do people do in the cliff dwellers club? I've been there for, they, they will host events, um, occasionally, uh, and except they, this one, except this one, apparently, <laughs> <It's true. laughs> uh, uh, and they have a, a yearly, the society of Midland authors, um, has sort of a yearly, uh, dinner there where they give awards to, to Midwestern authors and stuff. So um, it is a private club like the, you know, the Union League Club or the Chicago Club or one of those kind of places. So they have a nice space. They used to be above the Symphony um, Symphony Hall. CSO? Uh, but then they got kicked out of there. I can't remember why. So now they're Ooh. like a block away on the top floor. of. It's a beautiful space. They've got views of the lake and uh, it, it's really nice. Yeah, it's actually reasonable too, isn't it? I think I saw it was fifty bucks a month, which it's I not mean, bad. when you think about like a downtown swanky club, swanky club, that seems kind of reasonable to me. Uh, of course, yeah. a club like that is the, exactly the kind of thing that uh, Mr. Fuller probably would not have joined at all, because that was the thing he was criticizing was the back scratching and the bonhomie and the fact that everybody seemed to be not to put too fine a point on it. Everybody in his novel is trying to screw someone else over. Yes, and and. Getting back to the actual matter of the book at hand, that is for the first, what, 200 pages? Basically kind of where we're going with this book. Each chapter, it, it is a classic kind of, Victorian isn't the right word for it, but I guess turn of the century melodrama. Where, Late Victorian, um, yeah. People kind of Urban come in realism and out. Yeah, is one maybe. of the ones that gets thrown know, out a lot. People kind of come in and out, and basically at the end uh, of every chapter, you're, you're left wondering where some woman's virtue went, is kind of, is kind of the way I took it. One of the things that I wanted to bring up and wanted to ask you about, 
gender roles in this book are so foreign to how we think about things today. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit because there are very few women characters in this book with any sort of agency. There's, there's one woman who works as a waitress at a diner mm -hmm. who's talking to George Ogden, and she is obviously the smartest person in this book. Mm -hmm. She's very clever. She's on top of everything. Why is it that there is only one character like that? Because Fuller clearly liked that character a lot. Yeah. She gets the best lines mm -hmm. in the book. Yes. Uh, the book is very problematic in certain respects, uh, one of which is the casual sexism that is in almost every chapter. Um, I have not found many, and I haven't read his papers um, uh, that are at the, the Newberry uh, in terms of his correspondence, so I can't speak to his personal feelings about women. I mean, he was, he was gay. Um, we know that now, but, um, I don't, I can't speak to anything other than what's in the book, but certainly in the book, um, yes, the, the men are, are doing all the important things and the women are, are background characters and plot devices. Uh, and the men say some very sexist things about how women are emotional and, uh, how women are bad at chess and, um, a bunch of other just sort of random things. Um, that were very common in the you know Lake Victorian literature, uh, sadly. Um, so that was one of the things when we decided when we were discussing whether to publish this, republish this or not. Was how much is it worth it? Because there's there's problematic things in here. Obviously, there's there's sexism here, and there's also some sort of anti-immigrant sentiments in here, particularly in that one scene at the library, actually uh, early in the book. Um, but we decided that we thought the historical significance in terms of, you know, preserving this part of Chicago history um, in 1893, you know, like the loop, right? Downtown, it wasn't loop at the time, but downtown Chicago um, instead of the fair, which is what typically all we hear about in 1893 is a fair. So we, we thought that was really historically significant. And also this all, uh, book was very influential to other Chicago writers because um, he was really the first guy to write about Chicago in a socially realist way. Um, we decided that was important enough that this needed to be back in print so people could read it, even though it has problems. And in my introduction, I'm very upfront about the fact that it, it has problems um, and, you know, it would not get a good, you know, review from a contemporary reviewer if they were writing about this book today. Well, and this is something we talk about on the show quite a bit. It's, 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 it's an, you get to look at it from a historical context. I mean, women couldn't vote at this time. You know, this was a time where they had their place. And I'm, I'm, looking, I'm talking from a historical context, not my opinion, not from 2018. And I think you can't change the past and the way things were looked at. And maybe this is a, an exaggeration of women's roles. I don't know. I wasn't alive back then. But one of my things that drives me crazy, especially when people review books that are old and they're like, well, you know, it's sexist. I'm like, of course it is. It's like, you know, you weren't, women weren't allowed to vote. It was a sexist, you know, society we lived in. And I think you have to look at things from a historical context. It might, of course it's offensive now and, and, and people don't want to, you know, uh, think of like, you know, immigrants being bashed oh, or, um, you know, uh, you know, women having being set in these like subservient roles. But I also think from a historical context, we have to publish stuff like this because when you look back and you, and, and, you know, even though things are crazy right now, I mean, there's been progress and we can look at the progress that's made and what needs to be worked on. 
I mean, that's just my soapbox, but, you know, everything has a historical context, and you have to look at the time that it was written. So I'll shut up now. Well, I think, I think that that's one of the freedoms of fiction. You know, I mean, you, you could write the same story today, and it would, there would be truth to it in a sense. And I, me personally, I don't knock, I wouldn't knock a work of fiction just for that reason alone. I, I think that's why, in some senses, um, you need to learn to be a, a good reader is because there are... There are sexists and there are anti-immigrant well, people and there in the are, world. And there are subtleties get, right? to the writing yeah. where you might be able to get a clue as to what the author's own view was. And I, 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 did, I didn't... Personally, I didn't get that feeling that Fuller was antagonistic towards women, especially because of the, the character Jamie was talking about. is named Cornelia, Cornelia McNabb. And in a lot of senses, I thought she was the hero of the novel. She wasn't, um, she didn't get the most pages, but she certainly was the most virtuous and had the strongest character, made the most fortuitous and respectable decisions, I thought. But most of the background, a lot of the behavior is totally sexist. And I I don't know, I, I, he was just painting a picture. I don't. Well, I find it hard to criticize Fuller for that. Well, I'm not, I don't want to criticize him, but I do think it's interesting that in a novel with such overt sexism that this female character was, by and large, the best character both in oh, terms yeah. of the way she was written and in terms of the way she was portrayed. That was kind of what I was getting at here, was that despite the fact that, yeah, I mean, I think by modern standards, this is a fairly offensive book. Let's just put it out there. Um, it's also, from, by modern standards, not a very good book. I mean, if, we, if this was published today, this would be considered kind of a trite melodrama and fairly stodgily written in a very clunky sense. And again, I'm not beating up on a book from 1893. I'm just, this is, these are kind of the way people would look at it today if this came out. And it was published in 2018. As a fresh book, I, I think no one would read it, probably. For a book from 1893, however, what is interesting to me is that the most interesting character in the book actually is a woman. Mm -hmm. That is something that is very unique and doesn't happen very often, especially in books written by men, especially in books written by gay men. It does happen in, in, in books written by women, obviously. But to me, that was something that really stood out. And I wondered if there was any reason historically or in his personal life that you could point to that that was the case. I unfortunately cannot. The only thing I can say is he did have many very close female friends, such as Harriet Monroe, um, the founder of Poetry Magazine. Um, I mean, they essentially lived together for a long time at the, you know, at the Poetry Magazine offices on, on Cass Street at the time. Um, he would, you know, spend the night there working with her uh, on the magazine. So I, I know he had a lot of really close female friends, and I also know that he was considered fairly progressive at the time. Um, obviously, there's a lot of very regressive things in this from our perspective now, but at the time he was fairly progressive, especially considering how, you know, his views on capitalism and industrialization at the time. Um, and a lot of his other work bears that out as well. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, she's, she's my favorite character in the book too. I, I just want to say that chapters five through like 21 were pretty slow going for me. <laughs> it, it, it painted... There's a lot of chapters there, Mark. Pretty, <laughs> pretty, well, but you get the context, the social context and the historical context of 1893 Chicago. So it's interesting in that sense. But the characters are kind of, their Chance. interactions are kind of dull and they're, um, 
grievances are kind of petty. Um, I think but that's the you point, get to twenty two exactly yeah. right. But as far as being exciting for the reader, eh. but twenty two through twenty five. Totally made up for it. Should we should we spoil it? No, I, it's no, from no, 1893. No. Come on, no, 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 no. They're saying people no. have saying. Oh. All right. Well, at this point, Jamie, before have, you ask a question, I have a question. so many questions. I have a question for yes, Adam, yes. and then I'll shut up. Sure. Um, yes. His roommate Bromley is that his name? Oh, Ward Bromley, right? Yeah. Who he, he, when he died, he was uh, living for the last three years with yeah. the guy that yeah. he was living yeah, in yeah, the yeah. room with. Oh, Brow Brower Brower. Yeah. Um, there, I've read some criticisms, uh, literary criticisms. There's not a lot for this book, believe it or not, but um, where they speculated that perhaps Ogden and Brower, Brower were lovers, and that's why he never appears outside of that room. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you, if anybody wanted to touch on that or if you guys think that that was a possibility or people were just speculating in these essays. I don't see i mean i would love for that to be true but i don't see uh, i didn't as i was reading it and re- i didn't either retyping it word it. for word yeah I, I didn't see that supported in the text itself but it's certainly it's certainly something that f- could have come from fuller's you know life i mean as he winds up late in life in a very similar situation on the south side uh, of chicago so uh, there's certainly parallels to his life yeah this is by far and away the most questions we've ever had in an I-94 event. So uh, it's because of me. Only, it is because I'm of here. You. Yeah. It is. It is. Thanks, How do you people. get so handsome? I don't know. Such a, such I a handsome I can't see man. this guy on the radio, but it's he's amazing. a handsome guy. You guys don't know what I'm sitting next to. Uh, Susan asks, how does Fuller's work respond to Henry James's uh, thoughts on the fact that two writers are, are chronicles of American life? Chronicles of American life. So... Is this question for for? I think this should be for all of us. Sure. Yes. Sure. Why um, not? I'm I don't know if I responded. I haven't read James. You've read Henry James. Turn of the screw on college. Turn of the screws. Great. Yeah. I, I don't know if it responds. Personally, I don't think it responds to Henry James. That's my take on it. Having not read Henry James probably in 15 years, um, Henry James, however, I will say is a beloved author of my mother's and my aunt's. So I should have a better answer than that, but I don't. I certainly see parallels between the two men in terms of their approach to realism. Um, um, Fuller definitely has a different sort of form to his fiction and it's not as... Henry James did some sort of what we would call now almost stream of consciousness style prose, um, which was really innovative at the time that um, Fuller doesn't so much do here. Um, He's also a much better writer. um, James was also a much better writer, yes. um, which helps, um, but a nice Henry James coll- uh, connection I will make is that right now at the Art Institute, very close to where we are sitting, uh, there is a, a great exhibition on um, a painter named John Singer Sargent, mm-hmm. who was probably a lover of Henry James, um, which is very fascinating. You should all go check out. That That's exhibition. a great exhibition, by the way. <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite painters. All right. I want to just mention that I actually really liked the book, and I thought it read well. I've but I kind of like this clunky anti-capitalist stuff. So yes. I, I'm going to go with a very, I had a very positive experience for reading three. it. So yeah. one and a half, one and a half. All right. One for th- one and a half for three. I'm both. I mean, I'm both. I, I really enjoy it as a piece of history and as a, as a historical artifact. Um, 
and I enjoyed the prose at times. The introduction is the best part of the book. I, I guess. Well, yeah. <laughs> the introduction in chapter 22. Yes. Yeah, the does. best writing is in the introduction. Well, chapter 23 with the O. Yeah, yeah but I do recognize it is, it is a late Victorian novel by a guy that was not super successful at the time, and the only late Victorian novels we still read are the ones that were like super successful. creme de la creme. So, yeah, it's, it's not the, the greatest novel ever written, but okay. uh, I really enjoyed it, too. Enjoyed all right, from Kat. My grandfather was born around the time this book was published. Uh, his father was in a German carpenter's union. Does the book um, have anything to say about people like my poor immigrant great-grandfather? Terrible things. Ooh. Yes, real bad things. Yeah, yeah it does not have great... Th- it, it does not touch on really working-class Chicago very much at all because that was not the scene that Fuller was a part of and that's not the scene that he wrote about really in any of his any of his fiction it was mostly the like really upper upper crust of the upper class um but sadly the like one sort of memorable passage in this book that is about uh immigrants and particularly immigrants from europe and immigrants from eastern europe if you look at the location tags that he gives is pretty pretty unflattering uh that george ogden goes to the chicago public library which at the time was in city hall um, Immigrants are welcome at the library, just so you know. Yes, they are. And here. And uh, there was there's a big rainstorm in the novel, and um, so they close all the doors and all the windows, and there's a bunch of immigrants in the library, and Ogden talks about the smells, right? He's like, yeah. there's such a smell from all these different places, from Russia and from Scotland, and he can smell all these different people, and he uses the word, like, sickening or, or something like that. So it's not flattering. And you could say that wasn't Fuller talking, right? That was Ogden, the character talking because Ogden was ignorant and Ogden was, you know, bigoted towards immigrants, but I, I'm pretty sure that was, that was fuller as well. So well, I will add, and Kelsey can vouch for this. Sometimes the library is not the best place for smells. Like just, <laughs> yeah. Just throwing that it out so there. True. You know, yeah. So There's, true. So. All right. Eighth floor is usually pretty good though. Sam asks, do you think it is fair or right to view older books through new moralistic lenses. Since we've been talking about this. I do not. It's a critical theory question. It is a critical theory question. Uh, In fact, certain critical theories would say it's imperative to view it through a new lens. Others would say it's impossible to view it through a lens. I I vote impossible. I'm not so sure I agree with that. I don't. I mean, I think that there's been a lot of interesting critical theory Terry Eagleton, obviously, is kind of one of the grandfathers of this, of, of looking at books through a socialist and social history lens to illuminate things that people may not have thought about when they were writing the book. Having said that, as a writer, and I'm, I'm listening to my old mother over my shoulder right now yelling at me, saying that authors just write what they hear in their heads and they're not controlled by this sort of stuff, I also see Jeremy's point of view. So I think, really, it comes to what you feel when you're reading is, in a sense, an important thing. Is it important to look at this book and look at it through a 2018 lens, or is it better for you to approach it as a novel and just take it sui generis, I said? Yeah, I think it all depends on what your goals are as a reader or as a scholar or as a you know, writer covering a book um, as to whether you look at it through a historical lens or through a contemporary lens. Um, but uh, yeah, there are valid points on both this, sides. This of makes that. me think of last week's or a few days ago's conversation with uh, Sergio de la Pava, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the um, the cultural currency of the novel. Yeah, and it, it's almost like that question's a moot point because 
people are going to do whatever just, they want Just read. Do. Yeah. <laughs> Go read books and, yeah. and enjoy well, reading. It's interesting you bring that up because this novel was probably far more influential right now than Sergio de la Pava's book. Right. Yeah. And by the right. way, that's an episode 40. aired last week. Go look it up on Mixcloud. He's or awesome. I-94.org. <laughs> yeah, book's called Lost Emperors. But Sergio de la Pava is an author. He was talking about the fact of novel as protest and whether the novel is still a relevant cultural form to communicate with people. And he argued it was not. He argued he wished it was, but he argued that it wasn't. I would argue that looking at the serial, I mean, this was obviously published a magazine serial, so this is a little bit of a cheat, but this book did have an impact, and it was considered uh, a contemporary little bit of a bomb dropped here in Chicago. Adam, would you think that that could happen today? Do you think somebody could publish a, a book like that with that kind of effect in the city? Yes. <clears throat> uh, I think... Can you give me a recent example? Right. Not necessarily yeah, in the city, but. I can't give you an example of a novel in Chicago that has had an impact like this. I do think, particularly under the Trump administration, um, but it's, it was happening before that, um, that I feel like right now in American literature, really poetry is sort of having the most impact in terms of uh, on policy and on politics. Um, as opposed to to fiction or nonfiction, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because poetry has all of a sudden become a lot more accessible via social media, via you know the Instagram poets and, and people like that. And poetry is much more um, shareable and you know instantly consumable uh, by people, especially people with short attention spans. Um, is there a um, school of poets called the Instagram poets? There, I don't know really? that they would like to be called that, but yes, that are referred to like um, Ruby Carr and, and those guys. Um, so does that mean anyone can be a poet? Yes. yes. You were a poet, Jeremy. Thanks. <laughs> I was thinking, when you said that, I was thinking a Citizen by, mm. uh, I don't know if it's Rakeen or Rakeen. Rakeen, yeah. Claudia Rakeen. Rakeen. Oh, um, Rakeen. Yeah. But I also feel like books like that are read by white liberals and they're not going to affect like the voter you know in downstate illinois that's that's the problem it's like you know a lot of people agree on these things and and you know this country has a lot of problems and people write about it and and advocates for change but it's like it's read by the same people and it's the same like 10 percent of people that read books anyway and maybe it might get out into some high schools or some smaller groups but you know i mean well it's very true but i i guess i see that as a a literacy problem more than a literary yeah. Oh, absolutely. problem. Maybe. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not arguing that. But <clears throat> yeah. like, you know, people read like, you know, they're gonna if they're right wing, they're gonna read Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity, and you know, if you're on the left, you're gonna read like E. B. Ewing or Claudia Rakeen. You know, it's just there's not something that's gonna go straight down the middle, and everyone's gonna be like, oh my god, we need change. You know, it's just I think it's too polarized. No, that's the true. Moment. I can't think of a crossover. Yeah, book well, that has had that kind of impact. The last one I can think of was not a book that had an impact in this country. It was Roberto Bolaño's The Savage Detectives. Mm -hmm. I would say that did have a big impact on uh, Argentine and Mexican culture mm -hmm. because it was talking about Roberto Bolaño's book, Savage Detectives. That did create a, an explosion in that country. People were talking about that book very seriously. And of course, there's been books like that um, in France as well. Michelle Hulebeck has, has written yeah. a couple books that have exploded in the way that only Submission books in France like can that, do. Yeah. Yeah, Edward Virginia Despentes, yes, is that how you say it? Does anybody know her name? No. Okay. All right, do we've not. got a couple. We've got one, two, three, four. We've got a lot of questions. Sheesh. 
Guy's got a lot of questions today. So Kyle says, do you think that a good way to reestablish a critical reputation for Chicago authors, I think he means to, is to republish them. Um, and he asked about republishing Leon Forth's uh, Divine Days and his other works Master. Uh, as a shout out. So that's a good, good shout out, Kyle. What do you think about that? What was the first half of the question? I got the uh, Divine Days. Reestablishing a critical reputation by republishing people's work. Is that, is that how you do it? Oh, do I think that that's mm -hmm. a good way to do it? Is yes. To republish the work? I hope so, or, or I'm wasting my time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's what he was hoping to put you on the spot for. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I hope so. Um, the, the goal for me is that since Chicago was not and still is not, uh, you know, the center of the publishing and the media world, um, that a lot of these things have been either lost or very hard to find in print, like Maud Martha, obviously, is this amazing novel by Gwendolyn Brooks, and it is still technically in print, and I've seen copies here, actually. You might have some today. Yeah, nice. Um, but you can't find it in every bookstore like you should be able to, um, and there are a lot of books like that in Chicago that just, you know, we are in flyover country, unfortunately, uh, and we're not close to these centers of power. So, um, uh, yeah, that, that's the that, that's the goal is to get these things back on people's people's radars, which we've had some mild success with this. You know, this got covered in the Paris Review. It got covered in Chicago Magazine. Yeah, There's a trip it. story coming out. Um, Literary Hub is going to run something about it. So um, we're at least getting some people. It might be five people, but we're getting some people. Um, well, to, there's at least 15 in this room. Yeah. Yes, to uh, at least know that this existed. Uh, and hopefully that'll be the case with others. I would love to do Divine Days, uh, but that was published so recently in the 90s that there's probably, um, uh, uh, it would be very hard for us to get the rights um, mm. to that book back from the original publisher. I actually wanted to say, I went to Dominican University in the West Suburbs, and Sister Jean, who was one of my letter Professor, literature professors actually had an original uh, copy of the Cliff Dwellers, and that was the I, we had a Chicago literature class. Nice. I'll tell you, those Dominican nuns are awesome teachers because that's all they do is study. And she turned me on. She turned me on to Dybeck. She, I mean, she was amazing. But she actually had an yeah, original, Jean. and she would, uh, you know, Xerox passages. We didn't read the whole book, and that's why I was excited to read this. And maybe it's my soft spot for Sister Jean, but. Um, Totally unrelated to Sister Jean of Loyola. Yes, totally. Yeah. Two rad Sister Jeans in yes. Chicago. Yeah, but one's got more. One's uh, in more the suburbs. Hopes, one's yeah. on the north. More jumps. Yeah. Hey, on that note, we are actually out of time. So we have been talking about the Cliff Dwellers. It is a novel by Henry Blake Fuller. We've been speaking here with Adam Morgan. He is here with the Chicago Review of Books. He is the editor in chief of their press. Please give a final warm round of applause for Adam. And thank you all for coming. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Adam Morgan discussing Henry Blake's Fuller's The Cliff Dwellers, reissued by the Chicago Review of Books. This episode was taped in front of a live audience on July 19, 2018, at The Dial. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. 
For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. <laughs>